Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anish Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, you'll hear a conversation about genetic heterogeneity in breast cancer with Dr. Christos Hatsis. Dr. Hatsis is Assistant Professor of Medical Oncology and Director of Bioinformatics for Breast Medical Oncology at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. I always get nervous when uh, the topic on my script here is <laughs> more complicated than I can understand. Uh, tell What is genetic heterogeneity in breast cancer? That's just a mouthful. Uh, that's a very good question. Um, cancer is a, is a, especially breast cancer, is a very diverse disease. Uh, there are many different types of cells that make up the tumor, and these cells are genetically diverse. They just have different sets of mutations. They might originate from different, uh, you know, initial cells. So when we look at, uh, when we try to understand the cancer, uh, maybe one important aspect of it is really to get a, a good understanding of how heterogeneous that cancer is be- because it might affect uh, how well that uh, particular tumor uh, could respond to chemotherapy. Hmm. So, so how do you figure that out? I mean, how does one uh, discover whether a particular breast cancer has this kind of, as I'm understanding, differences, genetic differences between the cells in the same breast cancer? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Yes. How do you figure that out? Um, I guess probably, you know, maybe if we can take it back, uh, pathologists uh, have known that uh, cancer and breast cancer is very heterogeneous because they can actually see individual cells and they can see that these cells are morphologically, they just look different. Different shapes and sizes. Different shapes and sizes. Um, So that was the first uh, clue. And then uh, they have been trying to really stain or uh, attach different colors on different of you know on, 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 to to stay in different parts of that cell, so they can see that there are different molecules that are present in these different cells under the microscope. Under the mean. microscope, mm-hmm. yes. Um, and now we have extended, so our tools have been much more refined now, where we can actually take individual cells to the you know if we take it to the extreme and actually analyze the DNA of those individual cells, and we can see that the different if we compare the DNA from two different cells from the same tumor we can see many differences so that they look like they probably have originated from different cells. So are you telling me you can take the DNA from one cell at a time and get all this information? Yes, that is, that is possible. That is more cutting edge right now. It's not, it's not part of what we not do routine. every day. But, right. but this, is, yeah, this is within our capabilities. Uh, and that, that is really what gives the more uh, definitive uh, evidence or information about the heterogeneity of uh, tumors. So, so what would be a more common approach? Would it be different parts of the tumor? or? Yeah, I guess, I mean, what, what we really, when we say heterogeneity, usually we mean heterogeneity between uh, tumors of the same type. Mm-hmm. So, for example, there are three different broad categories that uh, uh, oncologists usually classify breast cancers. 
whether they are AR positive or they have certain uh, molecules on their surface, which indicate certain treatments, whether they are HER2 positives or whether they are triple negatives. Uh, and usually these three different categories were considered as relatively homogeneous groups. And just to clarify for our audience, you're talking about the ER, that's the estrogen receptor, right? So those are cancers that have the estrogen receptor, is that right? That is correct. And the yes. other one is this HER2 oncogene protein. Yes, correct. And the third doesn't have either, is that correct? The third one doesn't have either the estrogen or the HER2 or a third receptor, which is called progestin receptor. Okay, so, so no receptors and no HER2. Correct. Got it. Go ahead, please. And um, so, so now, I mean, and, and clinicians have been treating these diseases as, as relatively uh, homogeneous. So, if you are ER positive, estrogen receptor positive, you will be given a certain treatment. Now, we have really looked at enough of these cancers, and we understand that all ER positive tumors are not the same. Similarly, or HER2 positive tumors are not the same, and uh, triple negative tumors are more, are not the same. So, there is heterogeneity between tumors of the same sort of clinical uh, type, which has profound implications as to how you treat this patient. So maybe all ER positive tumors should not really be given the same uh, uh, therapy. And how we characterize that heterogeneity and how we link it to maybe potential uh, treatment uh, courses for the different subtypes of the diseases could be, it's a very important issue that we are actively evaluating in our group. Hmm. So um, how far along are we in this kind of endeavor? I mean, is it time for women with breast cancer to ask their doctor about uh, heterogeneity and whether their ER positive tumors are standard or type A, B, C, or D? Or is this kind of more in a few years? Uh, For some of the diseases actually where they're for ER positive disease, there are several several tests available, inclu- including you know one test that's called the Oncotype DX uh, that is commercially available, where uh, it can use the uh, some some of the molecular characteristics of the tumor to determine whether this particular tumor is high risk if they are treated with only endocrine therapy, or whether this particular tumor is so aggressive that it will need to be treated with chemotherapy and endocrine therapy mm. together. So that's that's a that's an example of a of a differentiation within the ER positive disease that really dictates different uh, treatment um, options. And this is something people are using right now. This is something that that has been used right now, correct? Mm. Um, and uh, for triple negative disease, uh, the it's 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 a little more difficult because the the tumors within that group are genetically even more heterogeneous. And the problem with those tumors is that there aren't really very many treatment options. So these tumors, tumors, because they don't have any of the receptors that we discussed, the only option for them is chemotherapy. And although there are a few options as to different types of chemotherapies, um, there aren't really there aren't many markers yet that can tell us whether one type of chemotherapy will be more effective than another kind of chemotherapy for this particular disease. So we are actively uh, researching, uh, trying to really find different biomarkers, different maybe mutations at the DNA level that will tell us the, how likely one of these tumors might be to respond to a given standard chemotherapy, say if they carry s- specific mutations on uh, specific genes. And that hopefully within maybe a few years, two, three years, five years down the line, 
could lead in uh, some tests that can be used for that uh, disease, which is really very challenging to treat. Yeah, wow. So, uh, so in practical terms, in terms of what you do research-wise, um, are you taking the these various people's patients' tumors and looking for mutations and collecting the data on how they respond, or and what's actually involved? When uh, when we develop, uh, when we try to discover uh, biomarkers that might tell us whether a particular tumor is more has a higher, you know, is more likely to respond to treatment or not, usually we have to collect samples from groups of patients that have been treated. So we collect biopsies up front, and then the patients are treated, and then we know how well that patient did uh, on that particular chemotherapy. So we compare the DNA or the, 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 the molecular uh, um, constituents of the, of the tumors from patients who really did well on the chemotherapy, and we contrast those to tumors from patients that did not respond, that were resistant to the chemotherapy. And then we can see if we, from that comparison, we can really see uh, specific mutations or specific biomarkers that might tell us how likely somebody may be to respond to the chemotherapy or maybe on the other side to not respond to the chemotherapy, which is important to know either one because that, that obviously you don't want to treat a patient with a chemotherapy that you know it's not going to be effective for that, for that mm-hmm. patient. It seems like you have to study a whole lot of patients' DNA to make these associations. That is true, and, and that is part of the challenge. Um, uh, you, yes, you, because, because of the heterogeneity that we talked about, you really need to see enough tumors from each type so that you can find biomarkers that seem to be working for most of the tumors. You don't want to find a biomarker that will be you know, effective for maybe one or two of these tumors. So yes, you have to look at a large enough number of uh, tumors, which is, um, it, 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 it needs to be done in a systematic way. It needs to be done in a large you know, place like Yale, where you might have some clinical trials where patients may be able to enroll and, 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 and allow study of this, this kind of issues in a systematic way. So do people's, uh, let's say a patient is being treated at Yale or has a biopsy, a breast biopsy at Yale, a tumor biopsy, does, do they automatically get included in this analysis or um, how does that work? Uh, typically they are not automatically included. Uh, there are what the, what they are called clinical trials, where a, a, a treating physician, so the, the 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 doctor, the oncologist that treats the particular patient when when they show up at Yale, uh, will inform them that there are certain clinical studies that might be available to them for that particular uh, type of uh, cancer that they may have, and uh, if the patient consents, if the patient agrees, they they might be able to donate part of their biopsy to our lab so that we can uh, run the sequencing, run the analysis, uh, determine the mutations in the, in the DNA, and eventually, after a large enough number of patients have been analyzed, be able to really try to see if there is any connection between uh, specific uh, mutations and uh, how well they did on the treatment. So it's voluntary on the patient's part? It's voluntary on the patient's part. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Let's just say there are patients who don't particularly want to have experimental treatment uh, but are interested in 
having their tumor studied. Do some can people sign up just for that for that piece without being on a treatment clinical trial? Yes, yes, actually, yes. I mean, most of these patients they are not really being asked to be on an experimental treatment necessarily. They will be given the standard course of treatment uh, that is indicated based on the disease that they have. But the fact that they will enroll in this study just gives us the benefit of studying their DNA and maybe try to link their the the, the particular. Um, aspects of their DNA as to how well they did on standard treatment. So they don't necessarily have to get on a new treatment. Even just getting the regular treatment, that will help future uh, treating future patients just matching the treatment to the specific uh, tumor characteristics for future patients. So, you know, for patients, I would think, you know, it's bad enough to unfortunately have developed cancer, but this is some way of, I would think, contributing and feeling like, well, you're helping future patients and maybe it's makes more sense out of it or I don't know I, I think that might if I were a patient it seems like that would be a sort of a making a positive thing out of something that's inherently kind of negative I don't know I would think so I, although I'm not directly involved in, uh, in uh, consenting patients my understanding from my colleagues is that most of the patients really see it in a positive way and they're willing to to participate in such studies so uh, so what happens so then uh, the DNA comes to your lab or the tumor comes to your lab or yeah, we have uh, the the DNA is usually put in a, in a liquid in a preservative that just uh, uh, makes sure that uh, the the tissue stays um, the tumor cells uh, uh, you know uh, they don't disintegrate, and then we take the DNA in our lab. We, we take the biopsy in our lab, and we extract the molecules that we need DNA and RNA usually, and uh, we send the, those molecules to the sequencing facility at Yale. Uh, and they perform all the sequencing. We get back the data, and uh, we we actually determine then based on the on the sequence of the tumor, we determine what specific mutations this particular tumor has. All right. Well, this is so such a fascinating topic, uh, and uh, we're going to want to pick up on it right after the break. Um, but right now, we need to take a break for a medical minute. Stay tuned for more information about uh, breast cancer and uh, genetics and bioinformatics with my guest, Dr. Christos Hatzis. Smoking can be a very strong habit that involves the potent drug nicotine, and there are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking. But smoking cessation is a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments and to decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies. Smoking cessation programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. The Smoking Cessation Service at Smilo operates on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based, and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications and smoking cessation counseling. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Christos Hatzis, 
And we have been discussing genetic heterogeneity in breast cancer, which incidentally, I'm still having trouble saying, Christo, so please forgive me about this. Um, so before the break, uh, you were telling me uh, about um, uh, getting the uh, tumor specimens from different patients and isolating DNA and RNA. And you said you send it off to the sequencing lab. What, what is the sequencing lab? I think the name is the Yale Center for Genomic Analysis. Right, uh, but what do they do? I have no idea. Oh, it's a complicated process, but I'll try to simplify it a little okay. bit. So they, they take the DNA, and uh, you know, which is you know, the largest, I guess, one of the biggest molecules in our body. Okay. And they break it down to smaller pieces, uh, and, and they make multiple copies of those pieces so that they can be sequenced. So when we say sequence, we determine the individual bases that are present individual letters. Those are the four letters that make up DNA, yes. A, T, C, and G? Yes, that's okay. correct. And so we, 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 we have uh, millions of small pieces of DNA, usually, you know, five to uh, probably 120 million, you know, such pieces wow. per sample. And we determine very quickly. They have the machines that can determine those letters very quickly. And they give us back a big file that has 120 million uh, sets of, you know, uh, small sentences that, you know, each one has the four letters. And I guess task, you don't send that by email, probably. No, that's probably, probably a very, very big difficult. file. Yes, huh? yes. Uh, but our task is bioinformatics. So uh, I guess a way that I like to describe it is, you know, you go to a magazine stand to buy a magazine, and instead of really the person giving you the magazine, they just run it through the, sh- the shredder. And they give you a bunch of, you know, small shred, you know, shreds of paper <laughs> that your task is then to go home and put those shreds together to really, you know, put the magazine together. I'd want my money uh, back. Yes. But that's what we do as bioinformaticians. We just try to put the DNA sequence together from those small shreds of DNA that we get, you know, from the sequencing facility. Well, how do you do that? I mean, I wouldn't well, know how to start doing that. There are tools that have been developed. We don't really have to, to do the whole thing ourselves. So there's a lot of help from large institutions like the Broad Institute up in uh, Boston, Mm -hmm. that they have been working on these problems for many, many years. So we just have to figure out what are the right tools to use for these tasks and then use them uh, effectively. But once we put it together, then then we we have to line up the DNA from the particular tumor to the reference DNA, which is the DNA of an average person, and then, you know, and then go letter by letter throughout all the, you know, three million letters that we have to find potential differences, which are called mutations. And then, and then, then we know that these mutations are assigned to this particular tumor. And, or maybe small pieces of DNA might be missing, which are called deletions. Or you might have additional pieces of DNA inserted, which are called insertions. So we have to determine all those things on individual tumors. And, and, and usually, you know, we report, it, it's, it's typically a list of maybe... 20 to 30, 20 to 50 um, differences for each tumor. And then we kind of have to prioritize those and really ad- and, and, and find mutations on, on genes that are more important in cancer, which might really tell us how, based on those, what might be the best way to treat this individual tumor based on those uh, specific mutations that these tumors might have. Hmm. So... Um if you have this big data file that has all these letters and these different pieces and you feed it into your you feed it into your machine or your database um how long does it take the computer to 
figure this out or, or do you have to interact with it? I mean, does, does it go into some algorithm that kind of <laughs> spits out some answers or? That's a, <clears throat> excuse me. That's a very good point. It usually takes about um, roughly a day per sample to do that. And um, it, it, it usually it's not, it doesn't have to be interactive. So we do all the work to put all the pieces together in what is called a pipeline. So we put different types of programs together that analyze, you know, that solve a different part of the problem until we get to the mutations. And then, um, and then we just let this whole program run on the computer. And again, it usually takes about, um, about a day. But at the end, because these are very important, I mean, you, you, you don't really want to make a mistake. So we have to go uh, uh, back to the individual data and really check every single mutation to make sure that it wasn't really a mistake at the center when they did the sequencing, or it wasn't a mistake on our side, so that this mutation is a real mutation, and, and which is kind of the very time-consuming part, but you have to do it. You have to check every individual mutation manually in the end to make sure that it's correct. Sounds very tedious, actually. Yes, 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 it is. It mm -hmm. is, but it's, you know, it's, it's, I don't think there is any um, automated way to do that. This, this validation the quality step, control. The quality control, right? Yeah. yeah. And what kind of computers are you using? Are these like giant mainframe things or, or PCs or do you do no. it on your MacBook? <laughs> <laughs> you could, I have no idea, really. You could probably do it on a Mac if you had enough memory, but it will take a long time. Uh -huh. um, we have, uh, we use, uh, what Yale has uh, a several computational clusters. They are called clusters because they consist of uh, hundreds of computers linked together uh, so that they can all work in a coordinated way to do this work. So I was talking about 120 million uh, different pieces yeah. of DNA. The way these programs work, they might send you know, a thousand of these pieces to one of the computers in the cluster, another thousand in another computer no at the same time. And then all these computers can do their own little work and at the end, the results are combined, so you can get this parallel processing of the information, which you cannot really do on a Mac. Huh. Yeah, that's so cool. And are these all these computers working just on that one problem at a time, or are they working on different patient samples simultaneously? They can work on uh, many different patient samples uh, at the same time. But you, So you can usually get, maybe if the computer has, say, a 1,000 uh, individual nodes, which are called those small computers, you can maybe get access to 50 of those, and another researcher may get access to another 50. So many people work at the same time on, on, on these systems. But we also have our own system, which consists of about 50 computers that we just use it for our own only uh, purpose. So only our group uses that to just improve efficiency in some of these calculations. That's fascinating. And is your background mainly in the sort of the, the informatics piece or the biology piece or how did you get involved with this that's a very good point i mean when i when i did my phd bioinformatics didn't really exist I'm right as i a was going to say you're... so my formal training is in uh, biochemical engineering okay so we were involved in uh, genetic engineering some of the you know early kind of work there we had to deal with a lot of data when flow cytometry came along so that really got us into the, the, the multivariate statistics and some of the aspects that you really need to do the bioinformatics work. So, and this was kind of a natural progression into this field. Then we worked in microarrays, 
um, back in the 2000s. And actually, I, as, as part of my path, I, I founded two companies that uh, we, we had developed uh, tests, diagnostic tests for breast cancer, utilizing a lot of those bioinformatics skills that, that we developed over time. Hmm. And I am uh, with Yale for two years now. Uh, continuing uh, work in breast cancer, something that had, I had been working on over the last 15 years. Wow. And do your company still exist? The company, as far as I know, I'm not part of it, but as far as I know, it was uh, sold off. It was licensed to, you know, the, to another diagnostics company that took over to commercialize the tests. Got it. So, uh, so you still have to work. You can't just retire at an early age. Unfortunately, so. <laughs> no, it's so, fun. It's fun. Yeah. So uh, I know I see you sometimes at our what we call our Precision Medicine Tumor Board, uh, and uh, you know, and for the audience, this is, the idea here is uh, that uh, we use. Uh, we try to use, or we're learning to use this kind of mutational information and genetic information to actually choose therapies, especially when patients um, haven't uh, they haven't been cured by the standards. Is this something your group in breast cancer is uh, is participating in? Or are you just kind of there as an audience like me? Or we we actually have a we we are involved in a clinical study, a clinical trial, uh, which is called MAPIT, where uh, we take tumors from patients that consent, that agree to, to participate in this trial. And then we evaluate all the mutations in those patients. And then we try to see what would be the best treatment that matches the characteristics of the tumor. And this is an ongoing study. But the challenge with that study, like, like you have seen in those tumor boards, is to really find, because typically tumors do not have a single mutation, so maybe a tumor might be presented with, say, 10 mutations, right. uh, which might all be somewhat actionable. So there might be drugs that you can really direct against some of these targets. But the challenge is, how do you decide which targets to go after? And, 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 and how, do you, you know, how, how do you pick among the options that you may have? And to do that, you really need to have an understanding of the biology. You need to be able to go back and see how these genes fit together in doing their work uh, in the tumor cell. And using that understanding uh, to, to say, for example, if a particular mutation um, makes a gene work uh, harder, so it just makes a gene that's supposed to not do anything, actually you know, work harder, and as a result, it will make the, cells, the cell grow or, or spread to other parts of the body. Mm -hmm. If you understand the relationship between that particular gene and other genes in the pathway, you may be able to go after some of the genes that regulate, that, that affect the, the, you know, the, the uh, parts of the pathway, parts of the, of the biological system, that, uh, that are connected to that particular gene. So just understanding it's not enough to really know a particular mutation and a particular gene. You kind of have to really figure out how these different pieces fit together. To do that, it's not, it's not easy for a physician to do on the fly uh, or a clinician when they have to treat this patient. So we try to develop tools. We try to develop a database with, uh, with some um, biological logic, so some of this information as to how these genes are connected together to, to help 
understand the effects of targeting a specific uh, a specific gene. And we're actually working with, um, I don't know if you know, the, the Watson uh, group from IBM, the people who have developed the supercomputer that uh, okay. built Jeopardy. Oh, right. So, <laughs> yeah, I heard something about that. Yeah, so we are working with that group to, to try to put tools together that may use that sort of smart you know, computer system to try to make some of these um, um, decisions. So you're thinking this is harder than winning at Jeopardy? <laughs> Definitely much harder. <laughs> Can you say that as a question instead of an answer? <laughs> what is the harder question? Um, fascinating. So do you think that um, – is it your expectation that at some point this is going to be – when we look back 10 years from now or whatever, this is going to seem – so Mickey Mouse, that it was so complicated that uh, we're just going to do our biopsies and put them through and it's going to spit something out and tell me what to do as a clinician? Or is this really, really complicated stuff that's always going to require this uh, very high level of interaction with, with bioinformaticians uh, like yourself? What, what's your expectation? Um, I yeah, I, I think cancer is 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 so complex, so complicated. It's it's like like you know peeling an onion, right? The more we learn, I think, the more we realize, you know, we don't really know enough. Uh, and I think we're, we have just started uncovering and maybe to some extent appreciating how complex this disease is. So I think you know on the positive side, and I truly believe that. I think whatever we do now will really have an impact for some of the patients. I don't think it's going to solve the problem of cancer, but it will add incrementally in maybe finding some tumors that we cannot really recognize right now, but maybe you know, using these technologies, being able to sort of identify those and, and maybe find the best way to treat them. So it will help maybe another you know five ten twenty you know percent of the of the of the cancer patients, and it's going to lead to the continuous progress that we have been seeing over the last ten twenty years. Dr. Christos Hatsis is assistant professor of medical oncology and director of bioinformatics for breast medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu or you can leave a voicemail message at eight eight eight. 234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.